0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 12 in our series, Exodus. There are all sorts of angles from which one can read and understand the narrative of Exodus as a whole, one of them being a tragedy. Once you have a Bible, or if you have one already, go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 40. That's where we're headed. Exodus chapter 40. You know, Exodus, uh, though, even before this series, I'm assuming, is a story familiar to many of you, it doesn't unfold or certainly doesn't end the way one might expect. The first 18 chapters are the uh, Prince of Egypt stuff. You know, memorable, high action, melodrama, insane divine wonders and horrors, quite frankly. In fact, the first 18 chapters are what instantly come to mind for most people with the Exodus story when it's brought up at all. But then, after those first 18 chapters, the scroll keeps going. The thing is actually 40 chapters long, and there are all sorts of angles from which one can read and understand the narrative as a whole, one of them being a tragedy. So, look, we're almost to the end of this thing, but something that I really want for all of us is to be able to see this thing, you know, the whole book, the whole scroll in your mind's eye, to be able to call to mind the shape of it in an instant. Uh, Last weekend I took my son back to see Jurassic Park in 3D, in in theaters, yeah, it's the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park, that's right, for those of you that wanted to feel old this evening, (laughs) the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park's release. I have seen this movie more than any other movie, and I watch and re-watch a lot of movies. In fact, if you factor in my movie going from 1993, this was the eighth time that I saw Jurassic Park in a theater. Uh, So afterward, I'm talking to my wife, Abby, one morning while we drink coffee about something that occurred to me about the movie this particular time around, about subtle differences between the film and the novel, and she and I were kind of interpreting a scene together, talking about animal welfare and chaos theory and all that, In light of the narrative as a whole, because I can, because I'm so familiar with this particular story, and I'm sure you can relate for whatever it is with you, I can see the whole thing in my mind. You know, I I see how it all fits together. I know the shape of it. I know the story this way and that way. So I can examine little intricacies one only observes upon several dozen viewings. When you know the story really, really well, you can examine it from all angles. When I first sat down, With the teaching team over at Bridgetown Church, the church that planted ours, we were kind of mapping out this series together for both of our churches, and one of the pastors quoted a scholar that they had been reading leading up to Exodus that wrote, um, "'To understand Jesus, you have to understand Exodus.'" For people who study the Bible, the second scroll of the Hebrew Scriptures is a big deal. Understanding the entire story, being able to see it, many argue, is crucial to understanding the meta narrative of the Bible, to understanding where it's all headed, and to understand that it is headed to Jesus. So, tonight, We're going to talk about the ending before one final evening in Exodus next Sunday, and then our annual vision series will begin on September 24th. That means the series is almost done, so before the story ends, bear with me, let's recap one more time. Ready for this? Deep breath. Wow, Excited. Okay, well, Exodus begins after Genesis, which seems like a given, but one funny effect of the Exodus story's kind of familiarity and popular culture is that we often see it as its own unique little movie set in what we often assume is kind of like the patchwork collage of Scripture, but it's not. It's all a story, one big story. Exodus is intended to continue the story that began in Genesis. So the end of Genesis has a story about a guy named Jacob, if you remember, having a good run in the land of Egypt. And now his entire family of Israelites have come to live with him there, and they're all blessed by God as they were designed to be in Genesis, and they're beginning to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then Some 400 years go by, and Exodus begins. In Exodus, just as in Genesis, God blesses humans to flourish, and then an evil oppressor appears to thwart God's blessing. In Genesis, a snake. In Exodus, a pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh enslaves Israel, brutalizes their entire people, and orders that all newborn Israelites, uh, boys anyway, be drowned in the Nile River. Pharaoh has, like the snake, so redefined the idea of good and evil that for him, murdering infants has become something good. This is, in the Bible story, what happens when someone decides that they know better than God what's best. And so... One Israelite mother puts her baby boy in the Nile, but in a basket or in the language of the text, an an ark, just like the one used to rescue Noah in Genesis. And the baby boy called Moses floats to safety and of all places, the household of Pharaoh himself, where he's raised among Egyptian royalty. And then one day, time goes by and Moses is grown now. He steps outside and seems to be confronted as if for the very first time with the reality of the oppression of his own people. He sees an Egyptian slave driver abusing an Israelite slave, and then he takes good and evil into his own hands, redefines both for his purposes, murders the Egyptian, and attempts unsuccessfully to kind of cover his tracks. Found out, Moses flees Egypt to the east just as Cain fled eastward after murdering his brother in Genesis, and he spends years in obscurity, hiding from God, hiding from his past, but God finds Moses, and more than that, he commissions Moses to become the instrument of God's salvation by commanding that Moses go to Egypt and demand the freedom of his people Israel, which Moses does eventually, but when he gets there and makes the demand, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, of course, says no. So God enacts incredible sign acts that we call plagues, and each plague is designed as both a literal physical event in space-time and as a symbolic act of decreation, inverting the good creative work of Genesis. We read the Nile will teem with frogs, an allusion to Genesis 1, when God said, Let the water teem with living creatures. There one was there for creation, here for decreation. We read, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats, which is an allusion to Genesis 2. The Lord God formed the man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What was previously the raw material from which God brought forth life, now defiant sin is calling death from that same dust. There for creation, here for decreation, creation and on and on the connections go throughout the plague narratives. But that's not all. The plagues are also designed as pronouncements of judgment and condemnation on the gods of Egypt. The plague of blood was against uh, Happy and Osiris, the Egyptian gods of the Nile. The plague of frogs was against Heket, the Egyptian god of fertility. The plague of dead livestock was against the god of livestock. The plague of darkness was against Ra, the god of the sun, and so on. So these are real physical events in time, also symbolic acts of decreation, hearkening back to Genesis, and also simultaneously, pronounced judgment on the gods of Egypt, the incredible subversive artistry of God. And so God gives Pharaoh and Egypt, really, many opportunities to repent, but Pharaoh persists in his unwillingness to do so. And so God finally enters into Pharaoh's unwillingness and releases a being called the destroyer on Egypt. And even then, God provides a means of escape from judgment through the blood of a lamb in an event called Passover, which becomes this profoundly symbolic ritual. If anyone, Israelite or Egyptian, would but paint um, the doorway of their homes with the blood of a lamb putting themselves under that blood as it were the destroyer would not be allowed to enter the house and pass over it instead but Pharaoh refuses and in the aftermath and devastation of that final plague he finally relents if only for a moment and Israel leaves Egypt for the first time in centuries and then in this incredible high action moment Israel finds themselves kind of hemmed in on all sides by the sea on one side Pharaoh's army the king of Egypt having changed his mind and set out to bring Israel back into bondage on the other side. But God suddenly splits the sea and leads Israel through what seemed moments before like abject hopelessness, and the enemy is destroyed behind them. And then, incredibly, maybe even most incredibly in this whole bizarre story, not long after all those miracles, Israel starts complaining. They don't believe God has their best interest in mind. They start to tell Moses that they wish they never left Egypt in the first place. They've been saved, but they won't stop doubting God's goodness. They won't stop doubting God's vision for their lives, not like us at all. Even, that was sarcasm, by the way, this is exactly (laughs) like us. But God takes care of them anyway. He gives them bread and water in the desert. He continues to lead them. It's really a beautiful story, if not a bit frustrating. And then the story shifts. Chapters 19 through 40 are about God making a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And here, God tells Israel his plan to do more than simply relocate them from Egypt he wants to enter into a covenant relationship with them in which they will become a kingdom of priests and God's representatives to all nations. They are going to be responsible for revealing what God is like to the whole world. Israel is into it. They, it sounds pretty good to them. Pretty good arrangement. So God, God's presence appears on Mount Sinai Moses goes up the mountain, receives the terms of the covenant agreement, laws about worship and social justice, relational love, new way of life to set Israel apart from all other nations as just and generous, and more importantly, as God's people. And the people agree to the terms. They say, it sounds really good. We'll do it. Now, God actually wants to come into the midst of his people. He actually wants to dwell among them. Now remember, when humanity rebelled in the garden all the way back in Genesis, it was the presence of God that was lost to them. But now, through this covenant relationship, God is going to come near to them once again. And so God sends these detailed instructions about the building of something called the tabernacle, which is a tent that's going to house his presence amongst his people. And the tabernacle is filled with all kinds of allusions to the garden of evil. Garden of evil, wow, geez. The garden of (laughs) evil. Eden, every small detail has some profound symbolic value. God is an artist, so he is designing this tent as a kind of heaven on earth, a mobile Eden so that God's people can, like they did in Genesis 1, enter into his presence. But meanwhile, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving these blueprints from God so that God's presence can come back to the people, The people down on the ground lose patience at the foot of the mountain after all they've been through, everything they've seen and experienced, and even then, they could see God's presence in a cloud at the top of the mountain, and it was apparently so incredible that it was terrifying. In spite of all that, they decide to make up their own God. Uh, and, and what's more, out of earrings, they, they kind of sculpt together gold earrings, make a cow, and worship it instead of God. So just like that, they've already broken the first two conditions of the covenant agreement, which were no other gods but Yahweh and no idols. And God is ticked, understandably. So, and in the incredible, devastating moment, of divine intimacy between God and Moses, God invites Moses into his experience of anger and hurt. And he tells Moses, what I really wanna do is destroy Israel. But Moses isn't having it. He says, no way, God, you won't do that. That's not who you are. You can't do that. It's not consistent with your character. And God says, you're right, and he relents. And so he brings judgment on those who kind of instigated idolatry, but he forgives Israel as a whole For their egregious sin. And he tells Moses, this is who I am. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am the one and only true creator, God. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in covenant faithfulness. I forgive wickedness. I forgive rebellion. I forgive sin. And I act justly in dealing with evil because I am good. So God and Moses go forward with the plans for the tabernacle. After all, And they build the whole thing. And now, this is where the story ends. So would you guys stand with me as we read from Exodus chapter 40, beginning with verse 33. The text says, Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses "...could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels." These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Have a seat. Now, the whole story builds to this incredible moment where after having forfeited God's presence in the garden, the possibility to dwell amongst God himself seems to be restored as God's presence enters into the tabernacle. But then Moses goes to the entrance. He's about to go in, but he can't. When Exodus began, it was a story about Pharaoh's evil and corruption. But as it comes to a close, as the narrative arc kind of evolves and resolves, it's God's own people who have become resolved to rebellion against him. God will still honor his side of the covenant, but the sin of Israel, their profound corruption, has rendered them unable to enter freely into his presence. The end of Exodus, anyway. And of course, the sprawling epic of the biblical narrative carries on until Jesus of Nazareth, who many biblical scholars argue becomes the new Moses, the one who can truly rescue God's people out of slavery. There's allusions to this all over the New Testament. And the lamb who, by his blood, (coughs) geez, (laughs) it's like I'm getting emotional, but not yet. Wait, we don't know what's going to happen. He becomes the lamb who by his blood saves humanity from the destroyer once and for all. Again, God is an artist. Now, listen, to get where we're going with this, we have to talk about um, the way that churchy language tends to evolve and devolve over time. So here's an easy example, the word religion which I'm sure conjures up a reaction and different kinds of reactions in each of you. For quite some time throughout the history of the English language, religion meant, and I quote, a particular system of faith and worship. Islam is a religion. Buddhism is a religion. Mormonism, Hinduism, all different religions, and Christianity, is a religion. But then, sometime in like the late 90s and early 2000s, Protestant American Christians decided we hated religion. This is something that we went on about. I was confused at the time. Uh, The Christians were all on about how we hate religion, and I was like, "The heck you say? Uh, Aren't we a religion?" Uh, No, apparently not. Religion is about rules and legalism, we said. Christianity is about love and relationship, we said. And people started saying, I'm spiritual, not religious. Anyone remember this catchphrase? It's still lingering around to this very day. Chris Pratt, just recently, I'm a Christian, but not religious. Word? I was like, well, okay. (laughs) I was like, y'all are bananas. I'm religious, aren't we all? whatever. And then there are all sorts of reasons that that happens, slow snowballing effects of the Protestant Reformation, kind of casting off the traditionalism of Roman Catholicism, and then the emergent church movement, and blah, blah, blah. But in this move to reclaim the relational aspect of discipleship, which is important, and to distance ourselves from some kind of empty, performative religiosity, which is also important, a certain line of American Christian thinking took the Reformation ball and just ran with it. And we started to understand Christianity as something devoid of rules altogether, we said, because you can't even follow them in the first place. you degenerate. You suck, actually. Salvation is a free gift by grace and is entirely opposed to the idea of, quote-unquote, good works. And for all the Reformed tradition's extreme aversion to good works... Jesus, I would argue, seemed to think that good works were just that, good. He said, and I quote, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' manifesto uh, on the kingdom of God and right living, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, ends with Jesus talking about whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. He does not say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but you know what? forget all that. Don't worry about it. I'll do everything for you, and I will impute my righteousness into you because you can't actually do any of that stuff anyway. If the gospel isn't about doing anything, how do you apprentice Jesus at all? Dallas Willard famously argued that grace isn't opposed to doing, it's opposed to earning. The idea that discipleship to Jesus involves no work, no effort, that it involves no rules nor regulations, inevitably distorts the gospel into a passive transaction, after which there is no discipleship. Salvation is a gift, and you didn't do anything to earn it, quite the opposite, actually. But the apprenticeship to Jesus is a dynamic relationship, not a passive transaction, Look at this from one of the four biographies of Jesus' life. A man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? There you have it. This dude is doing the work for us. Uh, He's asking Jesus point blank the salvation question. And his question is about something called eternal life. Now, most of us have something specific in mind when we think of an idea or hear a term like eternal life. If you grew up in the church or if you've made the rounds in Christian culture, maybe what comes to mind is the concept of dying and then going to a place called heaven forever. But that's not, we would argue, what this gentleman is asking. N.T. Wright says it this way. He wasn't simply asking about how to go to heaven after he died. The phrase kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that. It means God's saving rule coming to bring the whole creation into a new state of being, a new life in which evil, decay, and death itself will be done away. Many, perhaps most, Jews of Jesus' day believed that Israel's God would do this and would do it very soon. The question they were asking in several different ways was who would benefit from it and when it happened? Who would gain eternal life, in other words? So look at it this way this dude isn't asking about a trip to heaven for his ghost. He's a Jewish dude who shares a commonly held Jewish expectation about a Messiah and the kingdom of God, and now he's heard tell of this fellow called Jesus. So now here's a guy. He says to himself that might have an in on the whole kingdom of God thing. So let's ask him. He wants to be on the inside of this thing. Now if we know Jesus, and I think we do, he should say something like this: Do what good thing must you do? You don't have to do anything. That would be earning your salvation. That would be a works based salvation. Salvation is a gift. Justification by faith through grace. Now with every head bowed and every eye closed, repeat this prayer after me. That's what Jesus should say if he's a Christian. So let's fact check and see what he does. Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So that's weird. And then, and then it gets weirder. Watch this. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Notice Jesus has revised the man's verb. The man asked, how do I get eternal life? Jesus tells him how to enter life as if it is an ongoing process. The man wants a transaction. Sound familiar today? Many of us continue to think the same way. Say a prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, nice and tidy, done. Transactional salvation agreement. One scholar I read this week said that Jesus transfers this man from a market to a road. Isn't eternal life about living forever in heaven? If only Jesus had spelled it out for us. Oh, wait, he did. Watch this. Now, this is eternal life. This is pretty blunt, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does this have to do with Moses and God's presence and the inability to go in the tabernacle? Uh, In November, a couple months from now, Abby and I will have been married for 17 years. We dated for three years. Wow, yeah, a whistle for that. We've reached the point where we get a whistle for our length of time married. Um, At this point, I'm aware of the unique ways in which we relate to one another relatively well, how, how to best steward intimacy based on our unique personalities, how to prioritize connection, how we understand one another. We know each other better than any other person knows either of us. And I know, for example, that small gestures of consideration like uh, what me to me is like menial domestic awareness, uh, making her coffee in the morning or closing the shower curtain, uh, that means a lot to her. I wouldn't really remember to always close the shower curtain because I would probably never notice whether the shower curtain was open or closed or if it was there at all. But... Strange as that is to me, I have learned over the years that Abby does notice and that when I close the shower curtain, she sees it and she thinks, well, my husband remembered me and my preferences and he loves me. Go figure. And I want her to know those things, so I have trained myself to close the shower curtain. Is my closing the shower curtain relational love or works-based behavior? I loved Abby before I knew she cared about the shower curtain, and I've loved her after finding that out, but what good is the way that I feel if my life evidences no willingness to draw near to her in the way I order my behavior or my time or the way that I talk, the way that I live, in other words? It's not about how I feel or even the way that Abby feels, but it is about the willingness to come near to one another in a meaningful way that demonstrates the way we feel with action. The reality of God's covenant relationship with his people, as well as the reality of dynamic lifelong apprenticeship to Jesus, involves lifestyle. You can't perform your way into God's favor because he loves you the same when you do awesome stuff and when you do terrible stuff. So that's unchanging. But you can, please listen to me on this, you can have a radically different experience of God's active presence and its effects over your life and your community and your family and your future by drawing near to God and the power of his spirit, which means behavior and work And effort. It means demonstrated faithfulness through action more than just intellectual belief and certainly more than feeling. And this means that there's a certain reciprocity or a correlation between our closeness with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in our lives. Or to put it in another more sobering way, there's a correlation between how we live and the level of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. As an equation, it sounds like this. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals the power of God's spirit in our lives. Now, I realize all of those are loaded words, so before we end, let me offer a very brief commentary on each thing. First, intimacy with God. We talk about this all the time. Something we have to learn and to put into practice is the pursuit of living into an ongoing awareness of and connectedness to God himself. Call it practicing the presence of God, call it contemplation, call it abiding in the vine or prayer without ceasing in the language of Jesus or Paul, but it's learning to bring your mind and your heart back to God again and again through the routine and joy and pain of everyday life. We talk a lot at our church about hearing God's voice, but it's about much more than what we do in listening prayer, that little space in the gathering where we be quiet and ask God specific questions. It's about more than that. John Wimber once wrote, when I speak of listening to God's voice, I mean developing a practice of communion with the Father in which we are constantly asking, Lord, what do you want me to do now? How do you want to use me? How should I pray Who do you want me to evangelize? Is there somebody you want to heal? Sometimes he gives me specific insights about people for whom I am praying. These come as impressions, words, pictures in my mind's eye, physical sensations in my body to correspond to problems in their bodies. These impressions help me know who and what to pray for and how to pray. I love his definition of listening, which is developing a practice of communion with the Father which I understand sounds intimidating. But remember, it's not something you just have one day. You practice and you learn as you go. In Wimber's own language, developing a practice of communion with the Father. Working to bring your mind back to God throughout the ebb and flow of every day, learning to create rhythms for that very thing to happen more and more, not less. Intimacy with God. Next comes holiness. Now remember, Jesus called God's Spirit the Holy Spirit, but holy is, of course, one of the Bible words that we often say without knowing exactly what it means, or we say it meaning something other than what the Bible means by that same word. So here's one very simple definition of the word holy, to be set apart for God's special purposes. Another way of understanding the same word is as a synonym for unique. So the pursuit of holiness is the work of beholding a culture, or, or in this case, a world that is often in defiant rebellion against the way of Jesus, and then deliberately rejecting the status quo to be set apart or to be unique in all the world. So you see things like greed, scrambling for money and position, or you see social media image curation, posturing, digital addiction, everyone constantly glued to screens and devices. You see military violence and socio-political violence and violence between the right and the left, and you see materialism and you see excess, the idea that we have the right to spend our money however we want on whatever we want with no regard for the effect it has on our souls or the world around us. You see the redefining of sexuality as social justice, sex expressed outside of God's design for one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. You see the normalization of pornography and hookups and polyamory, and you say to all those things, no, no to the status quo. And in doing so, you become set apart, or another way of putting that is holy. You become unique. You don't... Buy whatever you want, want, you don't engage socio-political vitriol. you don't sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance. you don't drain your soul into a smartphone or an app. And because you don't, you are different. You will be unique. Or, to put it simply, you will be holy. So that's the set-apart dimension of holiness, but it's not just that. You're set apart, but for God's special purposes. Holiness can mean dedicated to the Lord. So you are not set apart for uniqueness's sake. You are set apart for God. The reason you reject consumerism and materialism is so that you can embrace simplicity and gratitude and generosity, what Cam was up here talking about just minutes ago. The reason you reject violence and socio-political vitriol is so that you can love and bless your enemies, unlike the rest of the world around you. The reason that you reject smartphone addiction and social media image curation is so that you can embrace silence and solitude and humility and honesty and self-awareness and being present to God and your family and your community. You're not just not doing one thing. You're not doing one thing so that you can do something else. That is what it means to pursue holiness. And there's a correlation between holiness and how much of the Holy Spirit's power is at work in and through us. Now, don't think of this as like a tit-for-tat kind of thing. Think of it relationally. The idea is not, well, you know, you didn't read your Bible enough this week, so the Holy Spirit's not gonna show up for you. And the, It's not, oh, oops, you were dishonest today, so no spirit for you. The Spirit doesn't wait to engage your life until he's evaluated how many things you've done for him versus how many things you've done against him and found the results passable. The Spirit engages us relationally. That you know what he's doing factors into your experience of the Spirit, where he's going, that you learn how to speak to him, that you learn how to listen because you make relational space to know him well, which means consistently practicing the way of Jesus, obeying the teachings of Jesus is how we grow in holiness and thus in the power of the Holy Spirit, It's how we enter into God's presence, which also means that every opportunity to disobey Jesus or to sin is adversely an opportunity to grow in intimacy with God's spirit and to access his power in your life. When you have money and you earned it, So you wanna keep it all for yourself or spend it on you, clothes for you, Netflix for you, nice stuff for your house, whatever. But instead, you give to the church and you divest funds to buy someone else dinner or sponsor a kid or donate to social justice causes or help someone in your community. When you're tired and your mind feels dull and you wanna poke mindlessly at a smartphone feed that does nothing to satisfy your soul and everything to drain it, but instead, you turn it off and put it away. And you look your kids or your spouse or your friends in the eye, and you'd listen and you talk or you sit in the quiet before God. When you want to linger on the image of a beautiful man or woman, to turn them into fodder for your imagination, for lust, transforming people made in God's image into objects. When you want to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but instead you honor them, you, you remember them as people, not things, and you dignify them as made in the image of God. When you badly want to join in with a group of friends who are, with their words, eviscerating someone who isn't there, someone so frustrating, gossiping, behind the veneer of venting, but you don't, and you choose to bless them instead and to pray for them. When you're alone And no one would know, and it's just you and a phone or a laptop, and you want to wander into certain corners of the internet, but you close the computer instead, and each opportunity to do evil is also an opportunity to grow in holiness and in the power of the Spirit. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power, and of course, conversely, no intimacy, no holiness, no faith, no power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in your life. Now this is not a rigid black and white guarantee per se, but as a general rule, I think it works a bit like that. Now, here's the thing. To end tonight, all of this can, if you let it, sound a bit daunting. But don't think of this as a far-fetched standard beyond your reach. Don't think of this as like, oh my God, I'm so off. I'm nowhere near these practices. I'm not holy at all. I'll never experience the power of God in my life. Think of it as an entry point. That is, start here. If you want to go in to God's presence, to know God's presence, if you want the power of the Holy Spirit made manifest in your life for the sake of your own life and for your family, your community, your future, if you want God's closeness, his healing power, the sound of his voice, his guidance and wisdom, his arms around you in pain and chaos, if you want that in the ordinary rhythms of life, as a parent or as a spouse or as a friend in your vocation, in your hopes and dreams for the future? Uh, Don't you? I know I do. Maybe I seem like an easy candidate for such a thing because I work here, you know, I lead a church. So yeah, of course, I want more of God's spirit as a pastor and Bible teacher. I absolutely do, no question. But honestly, just as much, if not more so, I want more of God's spirit in every facet of my life as I think to the future or raise my kids or navigate, navigate community and relationships or react to the madness of the world or celebrate victory or endure suffering. I want to be, some, the same, in the same way, consistently empowered by the Spirit of God in all things. If you're like me, if you want all that, then this is an invitation Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. Ever since Genesis, human beings have been wanting to return to God's presence while simultaneously pushing Him away. Today, we as disciples of Jesus have the Spirit of God in us. The question is, what will we do with it? Pursue intimacy with God, make time for the Spirit of God prayer in the morning or before bed, carving out rhythms to make those things happen. You have to start somewhere and to, to be holy, to be unique, to be different. You have to pursue obedience and make certain decisions about the way you will order and not order your life. Don't just seek intimacy with Jesus. Do the things that he said to do. Don't do the things he said not to do. And then when you mess up, which you will, confess, repent, and turn around within the context of your community, your brothers and sisters who you know for sure have also messed up and will mess up again. There's so much camaraderie in the inevitability of our failure, but also the promise of God's hope over our lives. And then ask God for stuff and listen what he says for you and for your life and your future. Act on the things that you hear. Pray, pray for people. Tell people what you think God might be saying with humility and understanding that you could be off, sure, but try it. In my experience, uh, people very rarely, if ever, get upset When I tell them, you know what, I was praying for you and I feel like this is what God's spirit said to me for your sake, to bless you and to give you hope and future and to speak kindness and blessing over them. No one has ever been like, wow, what a jerk. This guy's praying for me when I didn't ask him to and trying to bless me. And you can use your community and you can use me, you can use our leadership as guinea pigs and all this. We will never uh, rebuke you for giving us a word from the spirit, even if you're off, if you deliver it with humility and kindness, even if it's convicting and you say, you know what, I don't know for sure, but I think this is what God might be saying, would you test that and listen to that? I will never feel bummed or put out by someone coming to me in humility and saying, Josh, I could be wrong. I think maybe this is what God has to say to you. Are you kidding? More of that, please. This is an actual direct request <laughs> to each of you. I think, man, we're so like Israel, and, and this is a cliche thing to say when reading a story like uh, Exodus, but we are rescued yet grumbling, and, and we break our promises to God moments after having made them, and we stand at the threshold of God's presence, and we dawdle and say things like, eh, I'm not sure. Will I go in? Maybe. I have a question about the Bible. So does everyone. Come in. Well, yeah, I, I want to, but I am hurting. What better time to enter into God's presence than when you are suffering Yeah, but I saw this thing on TikTok. You didn't see it. She pointed at the screen and words appeared as if from nowhere. Very convincing. Why religion is toxic or some such thing. Great. How's that working out for you? Come into God's presence. Consistently practicing the way of Jesus, obeying the teachings of Jesus. All this Church and prayer and worship and scripture and community, accountability, faithfulness, this is how we enter into God's presence and become changed as a result of having been there. And we can do that. In fact, we can do that tonight in worship, in prayer, in contemplation, in community. It is right here. So let's go in together. Let me pray and ask God's Spirit to lead us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.